Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 14 through 19. He said to them, You brought this man before me as one who was misleading the people. I have questioned him in your presence and found nothing in this man's conduct that provides a legal basis for the charges you have brought against him. Neither did Herod, because Herod returned him to us. He's done nothing that deserves death. Therefore, I'll have him whipped, then let him go. But with one voice they shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison because of a riot that had occurred in the city and for murder. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Ebenezer Church. Welcome to this time of worship. My name is Rob Lau. I get to be one of the pastors here, uh, and that's one of the great privileges of my life. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, we have been engaging this sermon series called Second Chances. And if you look up on the screen, you can see that the background material for the Second Chances logo for the series is actually stones. And that's because the metaphor that we have used in this series about Second Chances, a series about grace and forgiveness and renewed life, the metaphor that we've been employing to talk about sin, because you can't talk about forgiveness till you talk about sin, has been weight, the weight of the stones that we carry. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how those, those weights of our sin can, can weigh us down to the point that they compromise our relationships with God and with ourselves and with the people around us. Last week, in a wonderful sermon, Pastor Mark talked about how there are these moments when we choose not to set our stones down at the foot of the cross. Instead, we choose to throw them at, at one another. This week we're going to make a turn, though. This week, instead of talking about what sin feels like and and how it impacts our lives, this week we're going to start talking about, okay, now that we understand sin a little bit, how did Jesus fix the problem? And if you were to ask most Christians what happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that that caused him to fix whatever was wrong with the world, most Christians would say something like, Jesus did it. What what did he do? Don't ask hard questions. Jesus did it, okay? We Most of us are not able to really articulate what it is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that caused humanity to go from being at enmity with God to being at one with God. And when we're in this theological realm of talking about how Jesus makes us at one with God, we're in the world of atonement. Atonement sounds like a big old fancy theological word, but it really just means how Jesus made us at one, at one meant. How did Jesus make us who were separated from God at one with God? We're going to talk about this for just a couple of minutes. On the back of your bulletin, there's a little chart, and you can feel free to fill that in. We're going to walk through that chart just a little bit. The question before us is, how does Jesus overcome sin? And about 500 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a man by the name of Athanasius came along and he said, you know, the problem is that when we sin, uh, we have separated ourselves from... Can we bring up the next slide, please? Thank you. When we bring, we separate ourselves, we, we, we belong to evil. That's what happens. We Our sin causes us to be under the influence of evil. We are indentured to evil. That's what happens, said Athanasius. 
And so what Jesus does to address this issue in his life, death, and resurrection is Jesus offers himself to evil. He says, evil, uh, I'm going to give you me, and in exchange, you're going to release all of humanity. And evil says, okay. Jesus ransoms himself for humanity. It's called ransom theory. All right, next slide. Yeah, great. Okay. So it's called the ransom theory. Because of our sin, humanity belongs to evil. And what Jesus does is Jesus ransoms us from evil. And this is the prevalent theory for about 500 years until about a thousand years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a man by the, An- by the name of Anselm comes along. And he says, no, no, no. The problem is not that humanity belongs to evil. The problem is that humanity has incurred God's wrath. Because of our sin, we have incurred God's wrath. And so what Jesus does on the cross is Jesus satisfies that wrath. It's called satisfaction theory. Jesus satisfies God's wrath. And another 150 years go by and a guy by the name of Pierre Abelard comes along and he says, no, 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 the problem isn't that humanity belongs to evil. The problem isn't that we've incurred God's wrath. The problem is that humanity makes bad choices. That we sometimes don't even know what is right. And even if we do, we don't always have the courage to do what is right. And so what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection is he came to give us a moral example. It's called the moral exemplar theory. These are the three major theories of atonement. If the question is, how does Jesus make us at one with God again? The answers are these. Jesus conquers evil. He ransoms us from evil. Jesus satisfies God's wrath. Jesus teaches we who make poor choices how to make better choices. So here's my question. Now that we're all atonement theory experts, here's my question. Which one is correct? What? All of them. All right, let's talk about it this way. Uh, do you think that by virtue of our sin, humanity still wrestles with evil? Uh, yeah, so do I. Yeah. And do we need rescued from that? Yes. Yes. We still do. Do you think that there are moments, not in, in the, the ether, but in the reality of your life and mine, when rather than bringing justice to the world, we can facilitate injustice? Do you believe that's true? Do we need someone to satisfy that injustice for us? Yeah. Do you think that there are moments in our lives when even if we do know what is right, we struggle to do it? Do we still need someone to demonstrate an example for us of what it looks like to live an abundant life? Yeah. We do. So so what I think is really important in, in this moment is is to understand that in the fullness of, of the Christ event, what happens is Jesus rescues the world from evil. Jesus satisfies the injustice that humanity brought on the earth and the wrath of God that, that incurred as a result. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, comes to teach the world how to live an abundant, beautiful life. He comes to be our moral example. That's the basics of atonement theory. Now that you know I went to seminary, I want to turn page for just a minute, okay? Um, 
there was a guy we read about him this morning by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas has become one of the most fascinating figures in the Bible. You'll understand why he's fascinating to me in just a moment. But I wanted to talk to you about his story. Because here's what we know about Barabbas. We know that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Which means that he was really, really uncomfortable. He hated the fact that Rome was occupying his native promised land, the holy city of God and the nation of Israel. This really, really, really got under Barabbas' skin. So much so that he participated in a riot, and the riot got out of hand, and he killed somebody. And so, Barabbas is arrested. And he's put in prison in a place called the Antonia Fortress. This is a a replica model of the Antonia Fortress. The real Antonia Fortress was destroyed about 70 years after the birth of Jesus uh, when Rome sacked Jerusalem. But uh, it's called the Antonia Fortress because uh, Herod built it and, and his patron was Mark Antony. So they called, he named it in his honor. He named a prison after him, which I, I've always thought was kind of a weird way to honor a dude, right? It's to name a prison after him. But anyway, so I just, I just want you to look at, look at that and think about the fact that Barabbas is in there and the prison cells are actually in the towers with the little bitty windows. So Barabbas is in there. He's imprisoned in, in that stone fortress. And, and I want you to think about what he must have been feeling because truthfully, Barabbas was kind of, he, he was an utter failure. He, he, his stated intention was to bring about insurrection. He failed. He didn't do that. And the reason he wanted to bring about insurrection is because he, he really believed strongly in his faith, but in his attempt to bring about his insurrection, he betrayed his faith. You know how I know? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. And that's exactly what Barabbas did. As he sat in that stone fortress... He was a complete failure. And if you were to put yourself in Barabbas' position, I can imagine Barabbas sitting in those stone walls with his head between his legs and all he was doing was waiting. He'd seen people crucified before. He knew what was coming. He was waiting. And he knew that one morning, One morning, there was going to be an echo off the stone walls of the fortress as the centurion walked towards his cell. There was going to be a buckle, a clanking of keys as he unlocked the steel door and threw it back. And then the centurion was going to yell out, Barabbas on your feet! It's time to pay for your sins. And that's exactly what happened. At least the first part of it anyway. One Friday morning, Barabbas with his head between his legs, sitting in his cell of defeat. Barabbas hears the stones echo as footsteps trapes along the corridor. The keys jingle, the door flies open. And here's where things go off the rails. The voice doesn't say, come on Barabbas, it's time to pay for your sin. No, the voice says, Barabbas! You're free to go. They took Jesus instead. Here's the thing about the Barabbas story that grabs me. 
I'm Barabbas. I think about the moments in my life that are great failure. Not the kind of failure that then you recover from and they make a movie about it. Dun, 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 dun. Not that kind of failure. I'm talking about the stuff you never want to talk about. The moments in your lives that you treat people like objects. The moments in your life that you betray somebody's trust. Those kind of moments that rich your heart out. And there have been moments in my life when I sat in a cell of my own making of grief and loss and fear and anger and I knew what should be coming. And then a voice came as if from heaven and said, you are free to go. They took Jesus instead. I am Barabbas. I'm the one who got to be set free because they took Jesus instead. And here's the next step. So are you. You're Barabbas. You're the one who got set free because they took Jesus instead, church. See, it's one thing to understand up here what happens in the Christ event. That Jesus rescues the world from evil and Jesus atones for the world's injustice and Jesus gives a moral example to the world, it is a fundamentally different thing for me to know Jesus came and rescued me from evil. Jesus came to atone for my injustice. Jesus came to teach me how to live. I am Barabbas. This is a picture of John Wesley. J-Dub, as I like to call him. John Wesley, Reverend Wesley, is the founder of the Methodist movement. And he was a really interesting guy, brilliant man. He received his doctorate in patristics from Oxford University in England, probably the most respected academic institution in the history of the world. And what is patristics? Patristics, patra, meaning father. So the early church fathers, people like Athanasius and Anselm and Pierre Abelard, the people I noted earlier in terms of the atonement theory. In other words, John Wesley knew all about these people. He had this incredible understanding of the early church fathers and things like atonement theory. But the really interesting thing to me about John Wesley is for the first 15 years that he was a pastor, he was a really bad pastor. Did you know that? You don't believe me. I'm going to give you an example. And at the end of this example, you're, yeah, he's a pretty bad pastor. Okay. Did you know that John Wesley came to the United States to be a missionary? You know that? Uh, John Wesley came to the United States. The founder of Methodism came to the United States uh, back in the, the middle of the, the 18th century to be, be a missionary here. And um, he started working at a church uh, around Savannah. And while he was there, he started dating a young woman by the name of Sophie Hopke. By all accounts, Sophie was an engaging young thing and beautiful and all, all, those, all those things that a young pastor would want... Uh, a young man would want in his life. And um, anyway, so they were getting a little more serious and they began to talk about marriage and all of a sudden, all of a sudden John Wesley said, nah, you know, listen, I, I feel like I'm being called to a holy life. And so he said, Sophie, I got to cut you loose. And Sophie said, it's okay. You're only 5'2", which he was. He was only 5'2". I can find somebody taller. I don't know if she said that to him like that or not, but in my head, that's how the conversation went. <laughs> so he cut her loose. A couple months go by, and as a young woman would be inclined to do after 
her beau broke up with her. Sophie's heart began to heal and she started dating another boy. This is where things get juicy. So John Wesley is at his church in Savannah, Georgia. He's just preached. He's instituted the sacrament. He is handing out bread for communion to people. And all of a sudden, Sophie comes down the aisle hand in hand with her new boyfriend, a boyfriend that she has because the pastor broke up with her. And when she gets up to the front of the line, John Wesley says, no soup for you. (laughs) He doesn't give her communion, church. Why? Because she had the audacity to date somebody else after he broke up with her. Can we agree? That made him a pretty bad pastor, right? <laughs> yes? Are you sitting there going, can, can you imagine if I did that? No, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry. And granted, it would be different because I'm married, but still, it, I, I can't imagine doing something like that. Now here's the problem. John Wesley knew all about atonement theory. He had all the stuff he needed to have up here in his head. But for 15 years, it never made the transition down here. It wasn't in his heart. And then, on May 23rd, 1738, everything changed. John Wesley had an experience that transformed his life and by extension was going to transform the world. I want to read you part of an excerpt from his, uh, his journal that he wrote. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Time out. What does he mean? Okay. So he was going to his small group. Really? He was. He was going to his small group. Their address was on Aldersgate Street. There are a million United Methodist churches named Aldersgate because of what happened on Aldersgate Street. There are. I talked to somebody after the last worship service. He said, I was baptized at Aldersgate United Methodist Church. I said, there are a million of them. The interesting thing to me is, he went very unwillingly. Right? He went very unwillingly. Which means that even when I show up to my small group, even when I show up to worship, maybe not in the best mind frame, God can still do something beautiful in my life. So I went very unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans, they weren't even studying the Bible. They were studying what somebody else said about the Bible. So even if I'm not really engaged, I don't want to be there. And even if it's not a really good sermon, God can still do something in my life. Let the church say, Amen. Right? About a quarter before nine, while he was still describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Let me call time out one more time. My heart was strangely warmed. I know this, Ebenezer is not a typical United Methodist church. I love me some Ebenezer for that, okay? But, one of the things you don't always know then is, what, what does it sometimes feel like to, to really be kind of a more authentic United Methodist church or a more historic United Methodist church? And if we were that kind of church, this phrase, my heart was strangely warmed, would be all over the place here. If you ever go to a consortium of Methodists, right? Ever go to an event with Methodists, you're going to hear this phrase, my heart was strangely warmed. How was worship? Oh, my heart was strangely warmed. Hey man, how was your taco? Oh, my heart was strangely warmed, right? It's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And this is the piece that people remember about Aldersgate. What happened in Aldersgate? Oh, John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. This is not the important piece. It's what comes next. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. 
even mine, and save me from the law of sin and death. He'd been a pastor for 15 years, and everything changes for him this night, May 23rd, 1738. Why? Because of two little words for me. All the stuff that was happening up in his brain made an 18-inch journey after 15 years from his head to his heart. And the difference was that John Wesley came to understand that what Jesus Christ did, He did for me. And John Wesley goes out from this event at Aldersgate Street and he starts to change. He begins to love the people around him and they respond to his word because he was truly a talented man. He, he ordained two bishops called Thomas Coke and Francis Asbury and he sent them to the United States and they started to ordain pastors and these pastors caught on like wildfire across the United States, eventually beginning something called the Second Great Awakening because of the United Methodist Movement. To this day, now, today, across the world, there are over a hundred million Wesleyan Christians. What changed? John Wesley went from understanding that God loved him here to understanding God loved him in here. What changed was that John Wesley began to understand Jesus Christ had rescued him from evil. Jesus had satisfied his injustice. Jesus came to show John Wesley how to live a life. And I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, that I think the same change has to happen in lives like ours. Because the truth is, That the gospel of Jesus Christ can peripherally affect my life when I understand it here, but when I understand it here, when I understand that it was for me, when I know that I am Barabbas, then all of a sudden Jesus is free to change the world through me. And one of my fears about United Methodism in general is that we do a really, really good job teaching people how to think about God. And sometimes we miss the opportunity to say to them, hey, you know Jesus did this for you, right? That's how much he loves you. For God so loved the world, yes, but God so loved you. It was for me, church. It was for you. You are the one he rescued. You are the one he ransomed. You are the one he gave an example to. You are Barabbas and so am I. We are the ones who have been set free because they took Jesus instead. And when we understand that, not here, but here, it becomes the single most defining piece of my life. I got a feeling that there are probably some people in the room today who've been going to church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years who could tell me all about atonement theory up here, but who maybe, maybe, just maybe never added those last two words for me. If that's the case, I want today to be the day. I want today to be your altar's gate. I want today to be the day there may have been a questionable sermon and maybe you didn't want to come. But 
God changed your life. Because of what I knew here. Move down here. I understand he did it for me. He set me free. It was for me. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this day. For this moment, a moment that is ripe with possibility. I thank you for the women and men who have been gathered here throughout the course of this morning in this holy place. I thank you for the history that comes before us, for all the teaching, all the learning, all the experience of grace and love that we have encountered in this place and with these people and in other churches and other experiences and from our parents and our friends. I thank you for the great, great history that brings us to this moment. I ask that in the holy beauty of this moment that you would help women and men parents and children, husbands and wives, all of us. To know beyond doubt that you didn't just come for the world. You came for me. You set me free. You ransomed me. You satisfied God for me. You came to be an example for me. May it resonate deeply inside of us and forever change our lives and through us the world. Thank you, O God, for what manner of love is this that you call us your children, but you do. You came for us. We pray these things in the powerful and grace-filled name of Jesus Christ. Amen.